You're listening to Off to Market with Scott Farley and Hamish Chadwick. I'm Hamish. I'm Scott. And today we're talking to Regan, and this has uh, been Scott's contact for a while with regards to patents. So, Scott, I'll leave it to you to introduce our guest. No problems. We've just uh, caught up with Regan. We've, as I said, as Hamish said, we've been doing this for a long, long while. And, uh, you know, with me, uh, good supplies. I, I capture under my wing and don't let them go. So, poor old Regan's had to deal <laughs> with me for, for a long while now. And,. Uh, Regan's just become uh, part of Spruce and, and Ferguson, um, but previously he was with Cullens, and so I consequently parked at the wrong end of the city and had to walk all the way down <laughs> catching up. But the good news is we're up here in the clouds at uh, Spruce so, and Ferguson. Po- Podcasting's and, uh, great for exercise. Yeah, that's right, <laughs> and uh, and we don't have the bugle horns and the uh, sirens going past that you have at my office. <laughs> so that's sort of, uh, I, I guess, our relationship in a nutshell, but uh, Regan's one of those sort of people who in an industry shines out a little bit. He's, uh, he's basically got a lot of insight and a hell of a lot of knowledge about the, the industries. That's why I've sort of chosen him um, to have this little interview because I'm hoping uh, in this little mystical area that some people are gonna really uh, get a lot out of this, this podcast as far as what to do and what not to do with patents. And um, so I might just start it off. The biggest thing I always get is everyone says, I've changed it by 10%, I can now do my own patent. Do you have any comments about that, Regan? Because it's, it's one of those things that's a massive misconception. I get lawyers telling me it. I get all sorts of educated people telling me they can change their patent by 10% and they're going to be able to do another patent um, based on the same idea. And it, it doesn't work that way. No, look, depending on how or who you talk to, that's a 5% rule, a 10% rule, a 20% rule. The, the number varies, but it's always a, if I change it by X percent, can I do something? The, the rules with the percentage, there is no percentage change. Um, that rule or that number sort of comes about because people look at it and say, if someone's got a patent, it's normally the other way around. If, if someone's got a patent and I change it by 10%, I won't infringe, um, which is not, it, that's not even the case. So patent infringement is all about, and sorry, I say patent and patent um, I say them in the same sentence. At least you don't say patent. I don't say patient. I don't say, say patent. I don't. And it drives me nuts. <laughs> people ring up here and go, no I paint. want to patent my trademark. And you go, oh, hang on. <laughs> no. Um, IP is all about jargon. But yeah, patent and patent are the same thing. It's just whether it's English or the US. So Australians tend to say patent. Yep. In the US says patent. No I say there's no, no I in the word. It's not paint. Oh, painted. <laughs> no, there's no N before the T either. Um, I say patent and patent in the same sentence interchangeably. It doesn't really matter what you call it. Just, yeah, P-A-T-E-N-T, patent, Done. patent. Um, anyway, sorry, uh, the infringement rule. So the way patents are written is there's a, a thing at the back called a claim. The claim sets out your your scope if you like that's what your protection is the claim is written as a list of features so it's normally a widget including features a b and c someone will infringe that claim if they copy each and every essential feature in inverted commas is the legal jargon so basically they will they will infringe that patent if they copy features a b and c if that's what the claim says now if they take if they copy a b and c and add d they've still copied A, B, and C, so they still infringe. If they add D, E, F, it doesn't really matter. They've still taken A, B, C. So that's the definition. That's how infringement works. You don't infringe a patent, and this is where this 
percentage change comes in. You won't infringe a pattern if you take A, B, and not C. So if you leave something out. So people often get caught where they go, oh, I've done this, I've copied their product and I've added this. That doesn't work. So in order to avoid infringement, you have to leave something that they've said is essential out. Mm. And generally, I mean, that's what a patent attorney's job is when we're asked to write patents. You're asked to basically provide the broadest scope you can by reducing the number of features that are claimed to the bare minimum. So people come in here and go, I've got a pattern for a table with adjustable height legs. You go, well, you actually don't have that. The broadest you can go on that is probably just an adjustable length assembly which you use as a leg, but equally that could be used as, you know, extendable pole for your pool mm. tool and all this sort of stuff. So we get paid basically to broaden out everything and reduce the number of features you've got in your claim to make it as hard as possible for people to design around. Yeah, and that's one of the areas I've noticed. You're very, very good at very broad. We, we, we do unique products. So generally it's a first of world, that, that's my niche, first of world, 100 year change type product. So it's sort of a little bit easier to make those broad when you're doing yeah. something that's a, 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 a Me Too type product, which yeah. is it's already out there in the, in the droves and you're doing a similar sort of thing in a different yeah. way, then it's a lot harder to make them broad. Let's just step back a little bit because we've talked about patents, but we haven't really defined what a patent is. So a patent is basically, you know, obviously something that's uh, novel and has an inventive step, and, and that's the two criteria. And there's also obviously design registrations, and I think from my experience, the 10% thing comes in there because a design registration is about the shape and configuration, it's which is just simply the way I think something looks. Mm -hmm. And when you change that... It's a lot more fluid. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you, can, you don't have to change that by much to be able to have a, yeah. your own option there. 10% is probably ample. Yeah. And I think this is where the confusion might come about. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to define what 10% of anything yeah, really exactly is. But. But, so, patents 101, <laughs> IP 101. So patents protect function. So it's um, it's the features that do a particular job or allow something to do a particular job. It's a, it's normally a set of components. You can patent methods yeah. um, in you know a set of steps that allow you to achieve a particular outcome. Methods are a lot more difficult now, particularly a lot of people are in the computer implemented space. Every second person that comes in here has an app. Um, apps are difficult to patent mm. um, because Patent offices around the world just don't like apps at the moment. Yeah. Software implemented stuff is difficult, but unfortunately that's where a lot of the development is. Yeah. Um, so patents are very functional. It's how does it work, what does it do, what are the features that allow it to do that, and then you protect those features. Yeah. Um, designs are exactly as you say. They're a visual, a form of protection for the visual appearance of something. So they don't you have, cover how you have a cup and you've yeah. got a, 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 an oval shaped handle. Exactly. And you have a cup yeah. with a triangular shaped pack yeah. handle. They both separate identities, yeah. even though they're the same function. Yeah. So designs are designs are useful and they're good for things that have to look a particular way to work a particular way. Yes. Exactly. Or they're they're equally good for things that are known. But look different. So you know, chairs, bottles. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff gets yeah. design registered. Yeah. You have design registrations for the the patterns on floor tiles. You can get design registrations for fabric patterns. Mm. Um, so they're they're very you they're useful for the things that fit them well. Yeah. So visual appearance protection. And sometimes said, that's really important for your brand identity. I'm obviously Hamish's brand. So the way your product looks 
Um, if it's an engineering product, there's no paint aspect about it. You'll still get a design registration because you don't want someone else to come out with the exact same thing and the exact same look yeah. because that's your identity of your product. They can do it the same, a different way and look a different way. Um, with paints, what I normally do if I have to get around a paint, so if someone comes to me and they've got an idea and it's worth pursuing and there's other products on the market, what I try and do is, well, my, my, my list of criteria is to do the same thing in a completely different way. Mm. So there's always more ways to skin a cat than one. And, and that's functional again. Yeah. You're, like, you're going to the function that's of it. Exactly I right. want to do that job, but I want to do that job yep. in a different way exactly. or using different parts. Yep. And that's where, like when we are talking before about the 10% rule, if you're different enough, you can get a patent over someone else's patent, provided that you're functionally different, or, yeah, the, or exactly. the way that the parts work together is different, or the parts are different. And, and that's, that's also really why it's so important to get a really refined product on the market, because if you can make it as cheap as possible, and as efficient as possible, and you can patent that way of doing it, if someone else wants to do it a different way, and it's more expensive, you're gonna have, have trouble breaking into the market. Which I guess comes into, um, you know what products to paint. <laughs> yeah, and and what and when yeah. are possibly the two Very questions important. that are asked, yep. that we yep. get asked the most. Yep. And the you know the Cliff Notes version of it is yes, you can file stuff too early. Like a lot of people come in here and they've just got a, a drawing on a page and they go, "Here's my invention." You go, "You don't really have an invention. No. You've got this nebulous sort of concept in yep. your head that needs a boatload of work before yep. it's actually going to be a marketable product." Yep. And if you do that, if you come at that stage, what your what your attorney should be saying is, you've come too early. Mm. You know, it's good that you're thinking about it this early because that's the right time because you have to file a patent application before there's any public disclosure. Yep. Mm. But you, you're too early in the process. Yep. You need to do some work to, to flesh it out to get as far as you can toward the finished article. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the closer you can get to that finished article, the better the patent can be written, You know, the cheaper it's going to be in the long run, rather Easier than writing to defend. four or five things that arguably covered or may cover it, yeah. and then you come up with something completely different by going to someone who knows what they're talking about in, yeah. in the design space like you guys. Yeah. Um, you know, it might change from the, the back of the envelope picture to the, the finished product can, you know, that, that's ridiculous how yeah. much it changes. Yeah. So you're far better off to get as, as close as you can to the finished product before you start. Yeah. That's the first thing about the when. Yeah. And then the what. I mean, that also clarifies what you're trying to protect exactly. because you know, you're not gonna get a patent for something as broad as a picture on a page. This is my, you know, my new brick that is gonna become the world leader because you know it's made out of low carbon footprint stuff and has an interlocking key that allows it to lock together with other bricks. And you go, Okay, that's fine, but there are a, you know, a, a myriad of interlock key things around. How is yours different? I don't really know. Well, go away, do some work, get some input from someone to help you design this thing, and then come to us with what what the invention actually is in a little bit more concrete form. Sorry about the pun. Um, <laughs> you, you need, we want more puns in this podcast. More, more puns. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, as as far as you can get to the finished product, that clarifies. You know, that gives us. A when you're filing yep. and what you're filing, like yep. it's it's much easier for a patent attorney to say we're trying to protect this. Yep. If the thing that you're trying to protect is actually 
in a in a finished form, yep, yep. then you can direct the protection a lot more focused yep. instead of just shotgunning everything. I mean, there's obviously this whole. So, sorry, I was just going to say just and just also for uh, in terms of a, a patent is all about protecting an idea, protecting a product, protecting yep. a concept. Yep. Now, if you're if you haven't got a patent and you're starting to talk to someone like yourself, what protections can you put in place to guard your idea as you because you if you've told someone to go away and work on it yep. they've told you they've obviously told someone else perhaps what sort of protections would you recommend yep. at that point prior to having a patent yep no problem um look there's patent attorneys are governed by a, a code of conduct that's very similar to the solicitor's code of conduct that you know says we're not going to abscond with your ip blah blah blah, blah. i mean Cullen's, the predecessor to Spruceson's, was around for 80 years. Spruceson Ferguson's been around for about 130 years. You don't stay in this business if you, if you, you know, start ripping people off their idea. Most patent attorneys will be happy to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, and, you know, non-disclosure agreements are everywhere. We have one. Um, I think we've all got our own one in this office. And they all differ slightly, but they're also the same thing. I, being the discloser, am going to show you, the receiver, information about blah. And normally in the non-disclosure agreement, there's a single line, which is not particularly helpful. Um, the best way to fill out a non-disclosure agreement is get together everything you can about mm. what your invention is, staple it all together to the non-disclosure agreement, and on the line in the non-disclosure agreement, say, information in relation to my invention, as attached. And then when you get the person to sign the non-disclosure agreement, get them to initial the pages, mm -hmm. because the, the problem with non-disclosure agreements, yeah. what you, you have the, the argument with non-disclosure agreements is always about what was disclosed. Mm -hmm. So if you've got as much as you can in a pack and, yeah. and the person signing it, the receiver, initials those pages, you know, if you ever enforce it, you stand up in court and you go, right, we've got a non-disclosure agreement, no, 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 yeah. oh, sure. is this your signature? Yes, is this your signature? Yes, is this your signature? Mm -hmm. And they're just turning pages saying, is this your signature? Yes. So all of this stuff was meant to be kept confidential. Yes. You know, yeah. you basically shortcut the whole procedure. Yeah. So use non-disclosure agreements. Most patent attorneys will sign them. Most people who are aware of IP, so the design fraternity, you know, accountants, lawyers, any sort of professional advisors are going to be fairly comfortable with a non-disclosure agreement. You can download them off the internet. You put in inventor confidentiality or non-disclosure agreement, you'll get hundreds of them. Mm. As I say, they all say the same thing, though. Yeah, yeah. You want a short one, because yeah. if it's too long, it intimidates people. And most of them are a page, um, if that, with signatures on the back. So mm. use non-disclosure agreements. That's the way to protect it. The other way is, you know, you walk into a meeting and you have a bit of bluff value. If you say, I've already seen my patent attorney, you know, in all of these things, we're dealing with patents, it's the IP industry in general is very difficult to understand. A lot of people don't know what they've got, they don't know what they can do, and in a lot of these cases, uncertainty is your friend. If mm. you can create uncertainty about what you've got, then someone who's looking at copying might just go, it's too hard. I, can't, I don't know what I can do and what I can't do without getting in trouble, so I'll just leave it alone. Yeah. So if you can create some uncertainty, and a lot of people just ring us up and go, is it okay if I say, oh, it's in the patent attorney's hands? I'm fine with that. You've yep. spoken to me? Yep. yep. If it goes ahead, you'll engage me. That's fine. You've spoken to somebody, feel free to say, yep. I've spoken to my patent attorney. Yep. And people go, oh, okay. They've at least got enough knowledge about it to 
be talking to a patent attorney say, what can I do, what can't I do? Has something been filed? Has it not been filed? Mm. It's that uncertainty mm. thing again. It's you know, But use non-disclosure agreements if you're talking to anybody right. because that is important. Right. Let's just swing back to, we were talking about um, winter, winter, winter pain. So we've got a little bit distracted, but we hadn't quite finished off there. Very important little fact here. Um, patent attorneys are sort of obliged to get the cover in place early because if someone else comes along and does the same thing, the, yep. the client comes back and goes, oh, you know, you, you could have got me in earlier. My, my opinion is the same as yours. If it's not if it's not resolved, it's not worth painting. It's basically not worth the papers written on. It can't be defended. It, if, it, if, it, if you have a date in place where the provision was a sketch on the back of a pad and then a year down the track you've got a resolved full patent, if you went to court, you go back to the original date and say, well, well this is what you had covered, it's a sketch and it does, you know, shows a string going to the moon and yep. some sort of transportation method up there, you know, it's never happened. Um, so for me, I get to a working proven prototype before I patent. I had that conversation with a client or a prospective client the other day who sent me information and said, can you follow a patent on this? And I said to her, yeah, you can, but the patent... The patent document itself is a disclosure document and whatever's in that document when you file it gets a certain date. So if you're back of the envelope and you file a document based on the back of the envelope stuff, what you've got cover for in that first patent and disclosure for is the back of the envelope stuff. Mm. What typically happens over the first 12 months is you, you undergo some development and within that 12 months if you get to a, a product or a designed product, then it's going to be much more detailed than the back of the envelope stuff. So what you do then is you might file another patent application that discloses the product. The problem is is that any information in that second one that isn't in the first one gets the second date, not the first date. Yeah. And that's where people run themselves into trouble. That's a good point. It's not set and forget. You can't just go, I've filed something that's really broad and I'm covered. You, you need to look at it as a, yeah. you know, the when question and the what question are related. Yeah. When you file and what you file determines yeah. what you get. So the the best form that you can get it into before you file your patent, even if it means waiting a little bit longer, yeah. the the better the better you can make that that application, the more complete you can make what's the disclosure in that document. Yeah. The better the patent's going to be, the better the cover's going to be. Well, and we've had a classic example with the click sinkers that we did through you. Mm. Um, that's a product I do that's just uh, a replacement for normal sinkers that snaps on and off. And there was one cross section we didn't put through in the drawing. I didn't put through in the drawing, my fault. But we did the patent searching. We didn't find any opposition to it that was sort of going to give us problems. And then when it got examined in America, the only country that got got, got a, a question on was America. And there was a product in there which the, the insert came in and out of easily. Mm. And we didn't have one cross section through. We went to apply with another division of just to cover that, uh, that one aspect. So it has to be pretty precise with a yeah. pretty s a serious set of drawings defining exactly what the product is to be really, really strong. And it's getting more, like they, they, it used to be that you could file a, a waffly provisional yeah. and you'd still be entitled to claim that date. The, uh, the Patents Act changed in 2013, they really tightened up on that. So now, th there was a requirement before, but the requirement now is called support. So whatever the, the, the patent application ends up being, mm. you're only entitled to the date that that information is supported yep. for. So if you follow that early wishy-washy provisional, yep. 
and then you fold the detailed one later, you're going to get the detailed date because that's when you have the support yeah. for the things that you're trying to say. Yeah. The wishy-washy one you're going to lose. Yeah. So you can fall too early and a yeah. lot of people do. So what we, we've always done very well together because, because I deal with startups and inventors. We've always used, and I appreciate this because a lot of, uh, a lot of IP attorneys will not allow you to do provisionals. You know, they really want to go straight to a standard. And there's two reasons we don't do it. Um, there's a commercial reason, and obviously the fact that it has, hasn't resolved enough to be worth the paper it's written on. So what we, we do, we, we get to a working prototype that we're very happy with. It has to be almost market ready before we put a provisional. That's my advice to clients. They can do what they want. I just give them advice. I can't tell them to do either because I wouldn't want to be the person who says, don't get, a, don't get covering and then get beaten to the mark. So you've got to weigh that up. Um, but this is, your information is a good reason why it is silly to go early. But what we do is we run the provisionals, which are unpub unpublished and un, um, uh, unexamined. So basically you can run the provisional through with a level of cover yep. until you've got your adapted part and then go to a full, full patent, uh, and that works very well. And the reason sometimes we, we run provisionals longer than probably other people is because if you've got a situation where you're trying to commercialise a product and you've got all your development costs, which you've just paid for, you go to your provisional, which is around $5,000, um, so relatively cheap in the patent scheme of things, um, and you also may have, you, you know, coming up your tooling costs or whatever, commercialization costs, which are all, all big things to account for. You don't really want, in that timeline, um, to have your standard applications or your international applications coming through. So, so sometimes, if we have to, we'll go to a PCT, which is the Patent Corporation Treaty, which allows you to have is it 250 countries, options for 250 countries? 155. I'm sorry, 100 now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but a lot of countries that you can then, uh, in 18 months, take, pick and choose from. Um, so that'll delay the process to the point when you've got your tooling and everything paid for and you're starting to make money and then you can afford those things or you've got your deal in place. So it's very important, I think, in my mind, not to rush into patents if you, because you may end up finding that you're tooling and your big costs are coming in at the same time your patent costs are coming in and it can break uh, you companies want, financially. You want money coming in you need money to, coming pay to pay for the, the big costs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the patent system is set up so that it's relatively easy to access it at the start. So the provisional is, as you said, it's about five $5,000 to file. It gives you 12 months of rights in about 190 countries around the world not published, people can see that it's there, so they can see that it's been filed, they can find the title, but they can't read the document, and it's easy to update. So that's its that's its strengths. But once you've paid your $5,000, you're basically paying nothing for 12 months if you want. Then you can file that PCT application, which is probably more expensive, it's about ten dollars or $11,000 now, I think, um, to file that through an attorney, and it gets you another 18 months in about 155 of those 190 countries. So. You can get two and a half years for about fifteen grand. Hmm. Um, so you're sitting there in your two and a half years. Your job in the two and a half years is to start making money because at the two and a half year mark, you're going to start to see serious cost if you're choosing a number of countries. You know, the US is seven thousand dollars to file. You can cover Europe as a whole. Even post Brexit, you'll still get the UK because it's slightly different in the patent world. Um, but that's you know that application's fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars to file. So you do those two countries in Australia, you're at dollars $26,000 straight away, yep. filing cost only, and then there's examination and other stuff down the line. So your 
the patent, they realise that it's expensive, so they've set it up so that you can get these blocks of protection, 12 months at the start, and then if you want another 18 months, relatively, it's not cheap, but it's relatively mm. cheap for the, the cover that you're getting in the, in the, the geography. Yeah. Um, so you get that cover, and your job in that, in that time is to start making money, because mm. you need money coming in to fund those, those yeah. downstream costs, because they are substantial, and yeah. if you've got no money coming in, you know, my fear is people ringing up saying, oh, I want to file these national applications and I've mortgaged my house. And you go, mm. that is a dangerous situation. Exactly. Very yeah. dangerous. Yes. So the sooner you can get money coming in for this from sales or licensing of the product, the better it is, and then you can use that money to fund the ongoing yeah. stuff. Yeah. You, need to, yeah. you need to treat it, like part of our job is to take the emotion out of it as well. Yes. You know, we understand that it's it's your baby, you know that sort of stuff. But you need to be realistic. And one thing your patent attorney should be saying to you is, you know, are you sure you want this many countries? You know, can you fund that many countries? Is there money coming in to pay for that many countries? Because yeah. otherwise, it's just shooting in the dark. You know, potentially wasting yeah. money. Um, it's just you know, it's a terrible situation. It's not good for us, mm. um, and it's not good for for the inventors or the funders of these things either, no. because it just ends up everyone's disappointed yeah. because it could have been something and it's and it's not gotten not yeah. achieved its potential. And um, not forgetting that you might have developed the best solution for the product, but does the market actually want it? Yeah. Until you go and put it on the market, you're not really sure whether you're going to have an income. I think so you yeah. don't really want to be tied into yeah. international patents. But also, just to clarify, I mean, you have to just because you've got a patent doesn't necessarily mean that that's that's it. No one will copy it. I mean, if someone can copy it, then you've got to pay for the defence of that. Patent. Is that is that correct? People, people are. It's, it's human nature. People are going to copy stuff mm. that is successful. If you're making money, then someone will want to copy it because mm. they can see it <laughs> and they go, "He's making money out of it, and it's easy for me because I'll just buy one of his and reverse engineer and start making it and selling it, and I don't have any of their costs except their manufacture. I don't have any R and D costs because I've done all the work." So people will copy stuff yeah. if it's making money. They don't copy stuff that's not making money because it doesn't make any sense. But if you're if you become a success, that's when you get copied. And yeah, I mean the patent gives you the right to chase them mm -hmm. and the ability to chase them. It doesn't mean you're automatically going to be successful. And that guy's not going to roll over just because you say I've got a patent and you wave it around. So you're still most of the time, if they're invested in it, which they generally will be if they've tooled up to start copying it or paid someone to tool up to start copying it, they're invested in it, you know, at least to some extent, they're going to defend anything that you throw at them, so it's going to start costing money. Yeah. And Australia is an expensive country to go through IP litigation. Mm -hmm. It's one of the more expensive places to sue people in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, just because of the way our legal system works. It's definitely one of those, in, it's like product development, it's, you got to build it on rock, because the stronger that patent is, the less likely someone is to go and yeah. take you on. Yeah. If, I, if I look at a patent that's been scribbled on the back of a mm. cut, pasted note and submitted, I'm pretty, pretty sure it's... You're more confident. You're much more confident about you you know, saying, well, this, is this going to be a defendable yeah. patent or not? You can so, tell. You know, if you've, you've drawn it up correctly, you've had it fully resolved, the product on the market's in the drawings, you know, this is going to be hard to get around, I'll go and make money another way. I'll, I'll, very I'll follow the path of least resistance. Especially if they're a multinational that go, oh, yep. that would be silly for me to do. Yeah. And that's where, it's, that's where it's useful. You can talk people out of it, if you like, before they even start. 
you know, by sending it to them, it's clear that it's you know, relatively good. Yeah. They go, okay, I'll just focus elsewhere because it's yeah. easier. But we've been focused on patents and a little bit on design registration. There are other levels of, of cover, but we won't go into the other ones. There's, there's plenty of information about trademarks and copyright and all the rest of it mm. on, on, the, on the IP Australia site. But the, the patents is really our area, you know, it's something that we, we do. And another question that always comes up is, uh, is China going to rip me off? And, and my experience is that Chinese patent <laughs> system is very, very strict. And they, in the last 10 years, they've done a hell of a lot to bring that to an international standard. I don't see Chinese ripping stuff off anymore. I see Australians using Chinese companies ripping Australians off. Um, but <laughs> that's, that's typically you know, how China, yeah, but poor China has yeah. no idea who he's, no. what he's doing. He's just following instructions. He gets engaged to make something and he makes it. So, it. so yeah. from my limited knowledge, the the penalties over there are very, very high. Um, the idea was that the, the Chinese government saw that people weren't, it was a restriction to their trade mm. because people were saying, well, China ripped me off, I'm not going to go there. So they just changed that. You know, as you do as a dictator, you say, this is not happening anymore. It's, it's much easier when there's big, big bad one trouble. boss. Yeah. And, um, and it has, and it's a very uh, powerful, and, and, and from what I hear, the Chinese are patenting a lot of stuff. The Chinese, yeah, the, the, the Chinese system is the most used system in the world. So there are more patent applications filed in China than probably the other top 10 countries in the world combined. Wow. It's ridiculous. That bit, yeah. And that's mainly, that comes from every three years, China, the Chinese government institute their, their three-year forward plan. And you know their three-year forward plan for the last 10 or so years has included this IP focus. So Chinese companies get incentivized now to file, to produce their own IP and then file patent applications so the government actually reimburses them some of the money for the wow. patent applications they file. Be nice, wouldn't it? So, yeah, so that's why it's it the most used. <laughs> you listening? Crazy. You got until Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the last election when Malcolm Turnbull was talking about innovation, 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 and then it mm. all disappeared from the vocabulary. I don't know where it all went, but mm. hey, we'll stop there. They've still got some good stuff going on, yeah. I must admit. True. Um, China, so they're strong now. They're strong. Yeah, look, and it's a historical thing. You've got to understand the development in China. It used to be easier for them. You know, they yep. used to make money out of the copying, yes. whereas now they're trying to turn themselves into yep. a manufacturing, uh, an IP hub, if you like, yep. a, a respectful, you know, they respect IP there yes. now because they're producing so much that's going out. Yep. And foreign countries have said, well, we're not going to, no. why, why should we help you with yours if you're not helping ours with, yep. with in China? Yep. So the Chinese system, though, is very different to Western systems. Their driver is on stopping infringement, not reimbursing you for the loss. So in mm. Australia, if, if your patent's infringed, you can claim damages from the person infringing. Um, you can say, you know, you made X amount of profit out of it and I want a percentage of that, that X amount of profit. Um, so that's, there's two different ones. There's damages, which is the damage you've suffered, or it's an account of profit based on what they've made. So they're the, they're the alternatives. But it's based on reimbursing you yep. in effect for the loss yep. because that person infringed your patent. In China, completely different. Chinese, the Chinese system is, is based on stopping the infringement. So China was one of the first countries in the world to have IP police. Mm. They basically drive around and they you know, they break stuff or they burn stuff or they shut people down. Like so it. it's also enforced at a, a regional level rather than a federal level. So if you've got a patent in China, and it's being infringed in a particular province, you go to, you register your patent with that provincial government and the provincial government actually enforces it. Mm. That's the better way to do it. You can get countrywide um, 
legal judgments in China, but they're slower and difficult to get. Um, it's much better to enforce at that provincial level because they're a lot more mobile about what they can do. And basically, yeah. they just go, well, is this going infringing or not? Yep, send out the IP police. Yeah. You know, and they just Look out. They, they drag stuff into the street, you know, Love they'll it. take it away, Love they'll it. break machines. It doesn't stop the guy setting up next door the next day, yeah. but it's going to cost him money to do that mm. if they basically just sledgehammered his, his moulds or something like that. So it, it's designed to do that rather than reimburse you. So it is a slightly different thrust, but they are getting much better with it. Uh, Oh, it's only relevant, I suppose, now for, for this, not for this podcast in years to come, but uh, Treasury Wines versus Rush Rich with the Penfolds copying. That was, that was, I believe, a reimburse, reimbursement. I didn't I think they smashed bottles of wine. Is that, yeah. is that true? Yeah, look, you, you can get... There are damages awards over there, mm. but the damages awards are much lower. Like, you read about okay. the awards of damages for patent infringement in, you know, the, the Blackberry case in the US in the, the early 2000s. Um, you know that was hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. worth of infringement. Yeah. Um, whereas in China, it's you know it's tens of thousands. Of US, yeah, right. it's, it's just not at the magnitude that it is everywhere else. Like even in Australia, you can get you know millions of dollars worth of damages. Mm-hmm. Whereas China just doesn't have it. They don't just don't have that. No. Um, the the Chinese thing is interesting, particularly that Penfolds thing, and this sort of deviates a little bit. But just on trademarks, China is a first to. F- a first-to-file trademark country. So what that means is whoever files the trademark application first gets it. In China. In China. Regardless of who actually owns it. So one of the difficulties that winemakers have historically had in China is they have an anglicised, like Penfolds, they use Penfolds as their brand. Mm. So someone in China opens up, you know, Penfolds wines, but it's not Penfolds. It's you know, um, I, I can't even do it. I'm not even going to try to do it. But it's Penfolds in Chinese characters. Yes. Um, and then they reach to Penfolds in Chinese characters, and because it's a first to file country, they own that. Penfolds can. It's very difficult for them to get that back, and it can be very similar or sound very. Similar. So they can't argue prior use. No. So right. in Australia, we have we have that prior user right mm-hmm. where I used it first. You apply to register it. I can oppose because I've used it before you and I have a reputation in it. So I have some protection. In China, completely doesn't exist. Mm. So trademarks in China, you've got to be very careful and you've got to file them early because if someone sees it when it's popular and and says, oh, they haven't taken taken steps to protect their rights in China, file it, it's very difficult to get that trademark Mm. back. Mm -hmm. That brings me to another point which is almost here. And it may be one of the myths, but you'd be able to tell me. A lawyer told me at one point that if you have an idea, you take it across to China and they develop the solution, their law supersedes the patent. So they're basically the country owns it, or the, or the person who developed it owns it above the patent right. Is that correct or incorrect? Yeah. Look, it's because this is an issue with me. I always try and get everything developed here. Mm-hmm. Because I make money out of it. No, 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 but I do see people going over there with an idea, and it's very, very hard to, to go with the idea. They're very good at um, reproducing things, but not yeah. so good at solution. Yeah, solution. Yeah. So, so it's very tempting for people to just scoot across to China with an idea and say, I'm just going to get it made. But I see it always ending up in tears. So there's another side of it. If it's, if it's not going to give you any patent protection, um, there's another side of it as well. Because obviously now, with China being so developed, and having like nearly 300 million 
customers, uh, <laughs> potential you know, customers, uh, uh, middle class people there to buy stuff, very influential. They're actually competing with Americans, but I actually first on now actually recommend people get a patent in China. The value, the value, value there. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about customer base. So, that, so it's very important yeah. to make sure you have your, if you are developing something, you have the IP. You always so, sign those. In the absence of an agreement to the, this is the golden rule, <laughs> the golden rule. In the in the absence of an agreement to the contrary, the person who makes it owns it. Hmm. Now, the person who invents. So, IP ownership and inventorship is, is one of the greyest areas in IP law. Basically, if someone solves a problem, then arguably they're an inventor. So, if you take it to China as a designed item and they have mold problems and they have to you know, invent different things to or come up with different solutions to that problem, then they can have some sort of inventorship rights. Yep. And typically what they do is they'll file their own Chinese application that you won't ever even know is there. Mm, yeah. um, it'll be filed in China and then when you try and leave to get, get it made somewhere else, they'll say, oh, you can't because we've got this pattern on the yep. way that this works. Yep. That's typically how it works. Um, the way around that is to basically set it up at the start and say, you know, you enter an agreement to manufacture this thing on my behalf, for me, any, the solution to any of the problems that you face during that manufacturing or tooling process are all going to be owned by me. Um, so you can enter those agreements and provided, it's one of those things, you know, it sounds cynical, but, you know, you're set up for the divorce before you get married, particularly with Chinese manufacturers. If you get the agreements in place early, in writing, signed, then everyone's clear on what their rights and obligations are. And if you ever try and leave and you've got one of those agreements, you say, right, this is the agreement. The agreement says I own everything. If you filed a patent application for this thing that you've used to make my invention, then that gets transferred to me. Mm. And you've actually got something that you can use to yeah. lever that from them. We have um, that agreement, but I, I will update that to you. Yeah. Modifications on tools might, yeah. might be included now. From now on, yeah, that's good. That's yeah, good. it's it's one of those things. I mean, agreements are good because you know not only do you have the patent, but you've also got the agreement. So you've also you've always got two tiers of protection. Yes. So yeah. Excellent. All right, I'm just conscious of time here. We, we don't want to bore yeah, anyone, I, but... Um, I crap on a lot, no, sorry. No, it's been great. I mean, all, everything we've covered <laughs> has been really, really useful. Yeah. I've learned things, and, and I've been doing this for a long, long while. So, patents in China are done, professional startup. I think I think this is, for me, I'll just put a little little interjection here about the importance of patents. So, a lot of people say, even you know, a lot of lawyers I speak to, patents aren't worth the paper they've written on. And some aren't. You know, I look at some and go, they just aren't. They, they really are just yeah. an idea. There's no viable solution to it, and unfortunately, it chokes up the payment system. And I don't, I, I, I almost think there should be a qualification before you can put a patent in. But anyway, that's a side issue. But the importance of patents from my end is if you're going to talk to a multinational and you don't have a patent, it's part of what you're selling. So if you have a nice, strong patent, um, the first thing you do when you go and speak to a multinational is you wait two weeks while they talk to their attorneys and their lawyers yep. and find out whether it's worth the patent this paper is written on. Luckily, with your intervention and interaction, we've always had really good responses there that this thing is bulletproof it's a great paint it's nice and strong very broad and it's partly to do with the area we're in the first world stuff yeah. but it's incredibly important when you're talking about licensing to a multinational you've got a widget but the widget's only part of the story mm. the ongoing protection of that through a paint is as valuable if not more valuable than the actual widget itself so well, the guy that you're licensing it to or potentially licensing it to what he's interested in you've got to look at it from his point of view he looks at it and goes, well, okay, if I pay to license this and I put it in my stores, then my competitors are going to see it if they like it 
and there's no there's nothing to stop them doing it then they're just going to they're going to copy it and they're going to undercut my margin yeah. and make my license worthless so it's in their interests that you have protection because exactly. that's a part of what they're going to use to restrict the market yep. for them yeah so you know it's if you think of too many, too many people in, in business only think about what's in it for me. You know, when you're talking to someone and you need their input, well, what's in it for them? And for them, your protection is valuable because they can use it or use it as a lever to restrict competition that they're going to see. You know, that's the worst thing. You know, Woolies doesn't want came, uh, Woolies doesn't want Coles to have the same product. That's that makes no sense because then. Coles can compete with them. Yeah. So if you know, if they're going to sign something, they mm. they want the patent. Yeah. And if you don't have it, they look at it and go, "Well, how serious are you about?" Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So that's the reason you do paint stuff. When would you? I mean, for me, I know the answer to this, but when do you not paint things? For me, I have to have a significant point of difference and a significant functional yeah. difference as well, because if you're just doing something, you know, in a similar way. You know you're going to be infringing, or you know you, you, there's certain things, uh, and it has to be a functional aspect. If it just looks different, you know, then it's design Probably registrations not. or trademarking or copywriting. All those sort of things are really valuable. Still, a good trademark, good brand name, as, as Hamish knows, is, is very valuable. But there's certain things you wouldn't paint. In your in your opinion, what? And this might finish us off because otherwise we're going to be you know taking it too much of a day, and also probably get into a really long. How long we've been going for? A fair while. Um, 41 minutes, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna wrap it up. But as a summary, what patents do you and don't you recommend a patent? It's a broad one, the old, but what, what yeah. wouldn't you patent? When's, when's it worth it? Yeah. Worth it. That is, look, we get asked that Definitely all, stage it, whether what time. you do, I mean, you recommend that. Yeah. You know, make sure you, you, you control your costs. It's probably, look. And your abilities. You patent, you should file, or at least think about filing patent applications for things that are going to create value for the business or for you. If it's not going to make any money or potentially make money or have value, make money is the wrong way to think, but if, it, if it's not going to have any value, then don't do it. And a part of that value question is, you know, as, as you just pointed out, how close are the competitors? If the competitors are close and what you're making is only very slightly different from the competition, then it may not be worth, you know, we're talking five grand for a provisional, 10 grand for a, a PCT, you know, thousands of dollars for, for national applications. You've got to make the cost benefit analysis. You know, am I going to get, or do I ever stand to get those thousands of dollars back? And if you, if the answer to that question is yes, or potentially yes, then it might be worth it. If you're going to make more than that, or stand to make more than that, then yes. So, you know, that question involves, um, you know, is it a viable product? Can it be made? Can it be sold? You know, are you going to make enough money out of it? Is your profit margin high enough? And is the market big enough to make enough money out of that yeah. to, to mm. make it worthwhile? It's almost like the old holiday situation. Are you going to, it, it yeah. almost comes down to it's not worth developing. Yeah. It's not worth painting. Yeah. But there's certain, certainly things, if it's just a visual thing. Yeah. But I'm sure there's complex situations paying. too where if mm. you, like you said before, uh, if, if, you pay, if you are able to patent something which is, uh, similar to a competitor product which is already on the market if you might can you decide to patent it just to be an annoyance to that company yeah. and they might approach you and say we really want to develop our product that's something that we wanted to do You're in the way. how much do you want to get out yeah. you know to move out of the way and that happens mm. yeah that happens a lot um, so you're not necessarily building value for yourself in terms of selling it yeah 
but you're getting bought out. So. Yeah. I mean, there's still there's still the value question. Mm. You know, the number, the first thing I ask generally to people who come in here is, okay, I don't really want to know what your idea is. How are you going to make money out of it? Because if you can't make money out of it, the best pattern in the world is useless. It's a, it's a piece of paper that sits on the cupboard and does nothing for you. So unless you can actually use it to make money, don't even start. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pointless. <laughs> you know, it's, you're far better off. You know, some people come to us and go, oh, I'm going to spend potentially five grand here on, on the patent, or I could spend five grand on marketing. And you go, right, there's your decision. Are you going to make more out of that five grand spent on marketing or five grand spent with me? If your product's only very slightly different, marketing's probably going to be better than the patent because the mm. patent ultimately is going to be too narrow to be of any use. So it's all about balancing what you're going to pay versus what you are or potentially going to get. Mm. But a lot of people don't even think about how they're going to make money. The, the, the number of times I've heard, oh, I'm going to sell it to Bunnings, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. and a lot of people sh- think they're going to sell a patent too. I, I've never research. seen a patent been sold. I'm sure you have in your in your experience, but it's a very well. Very, that's another. I was going to ask that you question. Know, well, Bunnings, well, Bunnings, Bunnings, you don't to sell, sell ideas to Bunnings to, for a start. Bunnings, oh, no. Bunnings rent you shelf space, yes. and you have to fill the shelf space. And if you can't fill so, the shelf so. space and it doesn't sell, they cut you off. So you're not selling anything to Bunnings. That is not a viable commercialization strategy. Um, selling, they'll tell you the price. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they'll tell you what you can judge. Yeah. yeah. Look, a patent, selling patents is the same. A lot of people come to us and go, I've got this patent. It's, you know, I'm not doing anything with it. Where do I sell it? A very difficult question. Yeah. Yeah. There are places, particularly, like the Australian market's not really big enough to buy and sell, have a, have a platform to buy and sell patents. Um, in the US, there are a variety of providers, um, but you've got to be careful. You know, Normally, they ask for a pound of flesh or your first board or something like that mm-hmm. to sell it on your behalf, as in, we'll sell it on your behalf and then we'll take 90%. Yeah. You know, so you've got to be a little bit careful with that as well, but 90% of some numbers are probably still better than nothing if it's just sitting yeah. on, the, on the shelf. Yeah. So there's always, you've got to be harsh with them. Yep. You've got to treat them like a business asset. If they're not making you money, you either A, don't file them, or if you've got them and they're not making you any money, they will be costing you money, Yes. so you cut them. Yep. You just kill them as soon as you can. It's a hard decision. Yeah. We better wrap it up, but it's been fantastic. As I said, I've uh, been in this a long time and I've certainly learned a few things in this little interview, so hopefully other people have as well. Yes. Uh, but in the end, it's a bit like the development process that we use. Um, build everything on rock, do it properly or don't do it. Uh, the money can be spent on a lovely holiday or it can be spent you know, spending patents, but if you can do the patent part of it... You sound like you're getting into a travel agency, I think. It's (laughs) Farley World Travel. (laughs) Uh, Farley World Travel. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Thanks, Regan. Appreciate your uh, knowledge and uh, sharing it with the audience. You've been listening to Off to Market with Scott Farley and Hamish Chadwick.